Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're in a new series on uh, Sefer Mishlei, uh, on the book of Proverbs, and today's part two. We're going to look today uh, at, at wisdom and foolishness. Uh, focusing on a whole variety of, uh, of different passages. The title is, uh, How to Be a Fool No More. <laughs> so we're going to look at different excerpts from uh, Proverbs 122, 32 to 33. Then we're going to jump to chapter 8, uh, 14, 15, 16, 19, 21. We'll put it on the overhead there for those who want the exact uh, citation. So, so let's start uh, with Proverbs 122. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me, this is wisdom speaking, whoever listens to me will, will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. I, wisdom, was there when he set the heavens in place. When he marked out the horizon of the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. When he gave the sea its boundary, so the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the fountains of the earth, then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, wisdom says. The simple believe anything. But the prudent give thought to their steps. A fool spurns his parents' discipline. But whoever heeds correction shows prudence. There's a way which seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. Flog a, marker, a mocker, and the simple will learn prudence. Rebuke the discerning, and they'll gain knowledge. The proud and arrogant, mocker is their name. They behave with insolent pride. In the account of the birth of, of, of Yeshua, you look at uh, Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1, we're told that the wise men uh, came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we've come to worship him. Who were these wise men? Uh, they were the, the culturati, the cultural experts, the leading thinkers of the day of their society. But they had to rely not on their expertise, but on the supernatural sign from God. And therefore, the account of the birth of Yeshua in the book of Matthew illustrates uh, the biblical principle that God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. And the overhead, God's wisdom makes the wisdom's world look like foolishness. Uh, God's wisdom makes the world's wisdom bow down to him, to God. This is also what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I'll frustrate. Where are the wise? Where's the Torah teacher? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? When you grasp who Yeshua really is, the things you thought as, uh, as, of, of before as foolish will now look wise. And the things you thought of before as wise will look foolish. 
Understanding who Yeshua is will forever change your understanding of what is wise and what is foolish. Now, one of the best ways to learn what wisdom is is to look at what the book of Proverbs tells us about its opposite, about its antonym, uh, what it says about fools and, and foolishness. So I want to look at these verses we've just read uh, and, and ask ourselves what we can learn about wisdom from what the Bible says in these verses about foolishness. So let's look at the overhead uh, at three issues that we're going to see discussed in these passages. Number one, what a fool is. Number two, uh, what kinds of fools there are. And number three, finally, how to be a fool no more. So first, what is a fool? You know, in the overhead, you know, in our ordinary language, if you look up in the dictionary, you know, a fool is someone who's seriously out of touch with reality of how things really work and should know better. So, so there's two aspects of this generic way of being a fool. Uh, seriously out of touch with reality and you should know better. So, for example, a three-year-old uh, might pick up a hot coal to play with it and burn himself. Now, we wouldn't call him a fool, though. Why not? Well... He's, he is out of touch with the reality, but he's only three years old, and he doesn't understand the, the physical realities of burning coals. So we don't hold him responsible for not knowing better. But if a 10-year-old, or a 15-year-old, or a 20-year-old, maybe he's following some TikTok challenge <laughs> and picks up a hot coal to play with and burns himself, yes, we'd call him a fool. <laughs> because he should know better. And by the way, there's a side note, extra credit here, <laughs> parents... Do you monitor and control the kind of social media your kids listen to and watch? They should not be on TikTok to begin with for a variety of reasons, a large variety of reasons. Uh, so parents, know what your kids are watching. Now, a fool is someone who's out of touch with the reality but should know better. But when the Bible talks about a fool, it's not just talking about these kinds of fools. Let's say, for example, a, a technological fool who's someone who's very good at computers and high-tech but foolish in the area of relationships. Or someone who's very wise in sports and athletics and brilliant at playing these sports games, but absolutely foolish in, you know, in finances and, and investments. No, but when the Bible talks about a fool, it's talking about someone who's out of touch with two basic fundamental facts about reality. And if you're out of touch with either of these two basic facts, fundamental facts, that you ought to know, then you're living life as a fool. So what are these two basic facts? Uh, first, the Bible says that when God, God created the world, uh, he did it like, like a, an artist uh, or a craftsman or an inventor because there's an order to the world. Uh, there's boundaries for land and sea we read about, for example. There's an order to the world. It's not just a random happenstance by accident. And therefore, there's a givenness to the world. There's a physical and a moral and a social and a spiritual order to the world. And if you're going to live a wise life, you must submit and live in accordance with that order. So, for example, uh, the physical. You can't just eat anything you want to eat and, and still be healthy. There are certain things that are good for your body, certain things that are, are bad for your body. But if you insist on violating the physical givenness of your body and eat all kinds of terrible things all the time, you won't live very long. You'll die young, uh, and there'll be, there'll be some kind of physical breakdown, but if you eat wisely, you have a much greater chance of living longer and being healthy. But the Bible says that's not only true of the physical world. There's not just a physical order to the world. There's also a moral and a spiritual order as well. 
So for example, if you always put your own happiness and your own good above everybody else's happiness and the good of the community over and above the common good, if you always choose individual selfishness and self-centeredness uh, and fulfillment uh, over the sensibilities of the community uh, and the common good, you'll have social breakdown. Because there's an orderliness to the way God intended us to live our lives, and if you violate it, there's social breakdown. Or if you build your identity on anything more than on God, if you build your identity on your looks uh, or your athleticism or your success, or if you build it on what people think of you, uh, or, or how many followers you have on Twitter, <laughs> or YouTube, or Instagram, or TikTok, or if you build your identity on anything more than on God, there'll be psychological breakdown. There'll be insecurity, uh, there'll be performance uh, dependency, always having to measure up, uh, there's frustration, there's all sorts of problems. So the first thing you gotta see is you can't live your life just any way you want. You can't just make it up as you go. You can't just determine what's right or wrong for me. No, because there's a givenness to the way God created the universe. And if you try to deny uh, this givenness, just live any old way you want, make up your own rules, the Bible says you're a fool. Bad things will happen to you. Uh, there's going to be breakdown in your life because you're out of touch with reality. Uh, now, on the overhead, that's not the only fact. We're not only told in the Bible that God created the world, with a certain physical, social, moral, and spiritual order. We're also told a second key fact. The world is fallen. The world is fallen. Sin and evil has, have broken the world. Uh, so even though there's still an order uh, in the world, so if you live your, your life uh, in accordance with God's order, or in general, your life will go better. But the world is also broken. That means sometimes bad things will happen no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try. So, for example, we read this in, in Proverbs 16, verse 25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but that way leads unto death. And we need to remember the book of Proverbs was written uh, to be read in community as a body. You're supposed to be under community, under wise instructors, and submitted to spiritual authority. And in this communal context... You're supposed to be working through the book of Proverbs piece by piece and discussing it as a group. So, for example, in one chapter, you find a proverb about a certain subject. You discuss it as a faith community. And then in the next chapter, you find another proverb on the same subject. But it supplements or revises or adds to what was said in the prior chapter. So you add that to your understanding and you discuss it in your group. Uh, and then you come to a third chapter. Uh, and there's another proverb on the same subject. And, it's, and it, the point is this, no one proverb on this subject gives you the whole picture. It's only cumulatively, as you look through all the aspects and all the facets, uh, the teachings of the book of Proverbs, uh, that particular subject begin to unfold. But today, almost no one reads the book of Proverbs like this anymore. Rather, what most people do is they find a single proverb they like and focus on that, or they look up a, a, a book up a verse on a particular subject they like uh, in a concordance, and they decide that's what the Bible says on this topic. But only when you read all the Proverbs on a subject together do you begin to understand what they mean. So, for example, this Proverb 16.25 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads only unto death. But before this verse, 
we read over and over again, many times through the book of Proverbs, something like this, Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. And the clear context from all the surrounding verses, it's really saying this. There's a way that seems right to a fool, but in the end it leads to death. So, for example, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of fools seems right to them. So other Proverbs flush out what Proverbs 16, 25 says, in essence, there's a way that seems right to a fool, that's the essence of the context, but it leads to death. And the point is, part of what, this is part of what it means. Fools are bad at making plans because fools don't ask advice. Fools don't get counsel. Uh, where should I live? Uh, what job should I take? Who should I marry? Major life decisions. Fools don't seek counsel. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. The wise seek counsel. Fools don't seek, well, they certainly don't heed counsel, so they're, they're lousy at making plans. And therefore, fools often look at a course of action, which is often destructive, but it looks good to them. So they take it. So the Proverbs have, have, have been saying all through many chapters, it's a way that looks good to a fool, but leads to death. And then suddenly it says in Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but leads to death. And by the way, ladies, I know you're saying, yeah, I know a lot of men like that. <laughs> but I'm sorry to tell you, this is the, the generic man. <laughs> it means both men and women. So no one's off the hook. <laughs> now, what do you know? Do you know what this is saying? Anybody, no matter how hard you plan, no matter how many people you ask, no matter how experienced you are, anybody can look at all the options and look at a course of action, which is actually turns out to be a destructive one, but think that it looks good at the time. Why? Because we live in a fallen world among fallen people. What this is saying is, for example, if you're a relativist, morality is relative. I can make up my own morals. Or on the other end of the spectrum, if you're a moralist, if you, you, know, if, if you uh, can feel you can earn God's favor and acceptance by being moral uh, and being good, if you're either one of these extremes, you are a fool. If you're a relativist who says, I can live any old way I want, uh, I determine what's right or wrong for me. If you're a relativist who doesn't believe the world was created by God, that there's a transcendent order you've got to abide by, then you're a fool. Things are going to go wrong in your life if you violate God's order. Uh, now, if you're not a relativist, if you believe in God, but you're a moralist, uh, that you believe things will go right if you behave right, then you may believe in a created world order, but you've also got to see it's a fallen world. It's a fallen order. And that you yourself are a fallen person. And therefore, no matter how hard you try uh, to live right, things can still blow up. No matter how hard you try, to, for example, to raise your children right, uh, they can still go wrong. No matter how well you make your plans, they can go wrong. Job's friends, Job's friends understood the world was created, but they did not understand the world was fallen. So when Job found his life falling apart, his friends walked in and said, gee whiz, Job, you know, if you live right, your life will go right. If you pray hard, if you're a good person, your life will go right. So if your life isn't going right, it must be because you're not living right. They're a textbook example of, of moralists, uh, and they're fools. Uh, and God rebukes them. 
and threatens to punish them unless Job will pray for them. See how these friends reasoned. They're moralistic. They say, if you lead a good life, everything will go fine. If you, if you launch out into life, well, with this theology, though, you're going to be disillusioned and disappointed. And you're going to say, why is this happening to me? So if you're either a relativist or a moralist, if you ignore the fact of creation or the fact of the fall, you're going to have horrible trouble. And this works out in many different ways. Uh, so, for example, uh, when you read analyses today of, of poverty, uh, why are people poor? Well, the relativists say it's all because of a bad social structure uh, and corrupt government uh, and corporate greed and institutional racism. And then the moralists, well, they say it's all due to a lack of work ethic or a failure of personal responsibility and drug and alcohol abuse and fatherless homes. Both the relativistic liberal ideology uh, and the moralistic uh, conservative ideology, they're incomplete because they're oversimplistic. Uh, they, they're both reductionistic and therefore foolish. They're not nuanced. They're not taking into account all of reality. And therefore, they're not wise. If you actually live in a poor area and you get to know poor people, you realize it's not that simple. Uh, there's so many factors. Uh, the wife was beaten and abandoned and left in poverty to raise six kids on her own. The family lives in a barrio in a with a terrible public gang-infested, drug-infested school, and the kids drop out after sixth grade. Or, or the father suffered a terrible accident and he's left paralyzed for life. Every case is unique. We've got to look at both the createdness and the fallenness of the world to begin to understand these complex dynamics. Otherwise, without this wisdom, we become fools. We become out of touch with reality, out of touch with the way the, the, way the world really is. But that's not all the book of Proverbs says. So on the overhead, number one, it talks, tells us what a fool is. But then secondly, it tells us what kinds of fools uh, there are. It tells us there's a variety of different kinds of fools. One of the problems with foolishness is that since it comes in so many different varieties, you can always spot a member of one of the other varieties. <laughs> Uh, when you think of a fool, you think of people who are members of, of that other class. Uh, but you don't think of your own variety of fool. All three kinds of fools that the book of Proverbs talk about are out of touch with reality, but in different ways. So to avoid falling into foolishness, you've got to understand all three of them. And all three are mentioned in the very first proverb we read today in Proverbs 122. So we'll put down the overhead. How long will you who are simple, that's the first kind, love your simple ways? How long will mockers... Number two, delight in mockery. And then number three, fools uh, hate knowledge. So we have three kinds of fools mentioned here with three different Hebrew words being used. Uh, the simpletons, uh, the mockers, and the generic catch-all word uh, for fool. And these three Hebrew words refer to three different kinds of fools, three different categories of people who are out of touch with reality. So on the overhead, uh, the first word is patim, uh, Pataim, I'm sorry, Pataim, uh, simpletons, uh, simple fools, those who are gullible. Uh, the second word is uh, Latim, uh, uh, mockers, scoffers, uh, the ruthless fool. And the third is, is uh, Kisalim, this generic word for fool, which can be seen as a, a stubborn or an obstinate fool. So let's look at these three types of fools. The first is the simple fool. What's a simple fool? Look at Proverbs 14, 15. A simple man believes anything, 
but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. Now, here's what a simple fool is. And it's not, by the way, it's not referring to someone who's unsophisticated. You can be down to earth and unsophisticated. It does not make you simple. So on the overhead, to be simple means you're so unformed intellectually, you can't discern between good and bad ideas. And or you're so unformed psychologically, uh, you're so unsure of your own identity, you're so unsure of, of who you are, so you need approval. And you need to be with it. You need to be seen as cool. Uh, and you can't discern between good and bad companions and good and bad leaders. A simple fool who's someone who gives too much credence too often. He's too easily led. Uh, he's too easily influenced. And since they're like, they're like little kids in, in, in many ways, they don't stick at things. A simple fool doesn't like the hard work of sticking at things long term. He likes instead the spectacular. Uh, a simple fool likes the most dramatic presentation, uh, not the best arguments. Uh, they're swayed instead by, by forceful statements, by the most dramatic, the most sensational. They don't stick at things. They're not characterized by a long obedience in the same direction. When simple fools become believers, but they stay simple, and sadly, a lot of people like that, <laughs> they jump from congregation to congregation because they want the most spectacular, they want the newest thing. They don't say, let's sit into one congregation, one mission, uh, one ministry. I'm going to take in the gospel and apply it to my heart and over the years slowly become more and more like Yeshua. Instead, they look around at the latest and the greatest new infusion of spirituality, whatever the latest fad is. And remember, being unsophisticated does not equal being simple. Maybe you haven't read much. Maybe you haven't traveled that much. Or maybe you're a bit parochial. Well, you can still be wise, whether or not you're sophisticated. And you can be very sophisticated and worldly wise, but still be a simple fool. So on the overhead, first you have these simple fools. Secondly, you have what I'm going to call the obstinate fool, the stubborn fool. Look at Proverbs 15, 15. A fool spurns discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Now, again, on the overhead, here's the essence of being an obstinate fool. You can't take criticism. You, you shrug it off. Uh, you're opinionated. You think you know everything. You think you know how things are going to be and have to be and should be. Uh, and, and the overhead, in contrast, the simple fool, he's devastated by criticism. Uh, he's afraid of it. Uh, he's too easily led. The simple fool believes everybody. The opposite fool, the stubborn fool, believes nobody but himself or herself. The simple fool... He's devastated by criticism. The obstinate fool just shrugs it off, ignores it. The essence of this kind of foolishness is being inflexible. You know, you think you know exactly how to do everything, and you aren't open to instruction or correction because you're obstinate. You're stubborn. Now, if you were here last time, a couple weeks ago, when we did part one of this study, you may remember we discussed this massive 36-nation study of the psychology of responses to conflict done by uh, Professor Jerome Kagan. And the study found that children are born with a temperament, uh, and that in particular, three different uh, innate temperamental automatic responses to conflict they're, they're born with, one of these three. And he, on the overhead, he writes this. The consensus today is that there are three basic temperamental reactions we have towards threats. Some people are wired for anxiety. Uh, that's the, let's get out of here, response. Some people are the opposite. Some people are wired for aggression, the let's get it before it gets us 
response. And some people are what he calls optimistic, which is no use getting bent out of shape. Things will get, probably get better on their own response, more of a passive response. But the fact is, and we discussed this last time if you were here, none of these responses is always appropriate. Anxious types are most likely to survive in truly dangerous situations because where either a fight or to delay would be fatal. So they just, they just get out of there. They don't fight. They don't delay. Uh, they're like an early alarm clock, always picking up danger, sometimes when it's not even there, but never missing it when it is there. The aggressive types, in contrast, they do best in situations that are moderately dangerous. And with the confidence that I can handle this, happens to pay off. Whereas the optimistic types thrive in the least dangerous and the most stable situations in which uh, evasive action would make a basically positive situation go bad. The point is this. Each temperament, each habitual way of dealing with the world can be highly inappropriate unless you're in exactly the right situation. So the aggressive has to realize, yes, sometimes you are to blame. <laughs> and the anxious have to realize, yes, sometimes you're not to blame. And the optimist has to realize sometimes things really are terrible. <laughs> now, modern parents have been taught that they should let their children be themselves and find themselves. But that can be one of the worst things you can possibly do for a child. Because unless a parent intervenes, a child's natural temperament will dominate them, and they won't learn to act wisely in situations in which their habitual temperamental or habitual response is inappropriate. Good parents will see the dark side of their kids' temperaments, and they'll intervene, showing them they need to have a greater range of responses. Good parents will challenge the anxious to be bold, uh, the bold to be anxious, <laughs> the pessimist to have hope, and the chronically sunny uh, to worry a little bit. Now look at Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The Bible's saying we all start out as fools. And do you know what a temperament is? A temperament is a shortcut because we lack wisdom. We tend to handle situations according to our default temperament, even though it's only one quarter to one third of the time ever even appropriate. Now, was Yeshua an optimist or a pessimist? Was he an introvert or an extrovert? What was his temperament? Well, it can be said he had no temperament, at least in this automatic shortcut wired response type of way due to lack of wisdom. In that sense, he had no temperament because he was wise. He was wisdom incarnate. He was perfectly wise. And he always did the appropriate thing, exactly the appropriate thing. The thing that was the exact right thing to do at that right time in that situation. But we're not. We're not wise with that perfect wisdom. And therefore, we need parenting. We need parenting from God. We need parenting from our parents. We need parenting from our spiritual leaders and mentors. And one of the worst possible things you can do for your children is either to overcorrect them so they're devastated by constant criticism and they learn just to ignore you and shrug it off, or to undercorrect them so they never learn how to take criticism uh, and to grow by it on the overhead. Because the essence of foolishness is not being able to handle criticism. And that's sobering for us as parents to, to realize all the mistakes we made in raising our own children. But that's why we need to be a child of God. That's why we need more than just a general, generic relationship with God. 
where he's someone, yes, I believe in, in in a general way. But you need instead to have an intimate, personal, experiential relationship with the Lord in which you're daily talking with him, praying to him, reading his word, worshiping him, delighting in him, seeking his face, uh, receiving counsel and correction from him, having him actually dealing with you. In a word, a real relationship and the overhead because our heavenly father is the perfect parent. He will challenge the dark side of your temperament. Uh, He will put you in situations in which the inadequacy of your habitual way of dealing with life, uh, your stubborn and obstinate way of dealing with life, is challenged until you become wise. But we all start out as fools. It's bound up in us. Proverbs 22, 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. So on the overhead, that's number one, uh, the simple fools. Uh, and number two, the obstinate fools. And now finally, number three, there are also ruthless fools. Uh, this is the mocker, uh, the scoffer. And this last category, on the surface, may not look like fools, but what are mockers and scoffers? The simple fool is devastated by criticism. The obstinate fool shrugs off criticism. But the mocker, do you know how he deals with criticism? He pays you back. <laughs> he or she will pay you back for ever having even voiced any criticism or concern or advice or exhortation. Because the mocker, we're told this in Proverbs 2.24, is motivated by overweening pride. The proud and arrogant, mocker is their name. They behave with insolent pride. A mocker is someone who on the surface looks incredibly savvy, uh, very smart about money, ruth- ruthlessly so, very smart about maximizing relationships for his own best interest, ruthlessly so, exploitative, many times abusive. A mocker is someone you think you have a friendship with, but then all of a sudden, when the relationship doesn't pay off anymore for him or her, they drop you like a hot potato. And you say, well, didn't our relationship mean anything? No, not at all. It meant nothing to the mocker. Because the mocker, the scoffer, is a ruthless fool. Is someone who utterly loves to be practical in their own self-centered way and do everything in a way that pays off for them. So in the short run, they look incredibly sophisticated. And many people have done well uh, in business or or the arts or or literature or the media uh, because they're mockers. Uh, because this ruthlessness helped them climb the ladder and kicked out anyone else who got in their way. But in the end, they're fools because human beings need relationships. And the mocker, the scoffer, always sacrifices the relationship in order to get ahead. The ruthless fool ridicules, is scornful, is skeptical, is ruthless, is cruel. And they seem to be very powerful, so everybody gravitates towards them. But in the end, they'll be so alone. We're made by God for relationships. So in the end, they're fools, utter fools. So you see how different each of these three types of fools are, as laid out in the book of Proverbs. But they all have this in common. They're all out of touch with reality. And as a result, their life will be devastated. So in the overhead, that's number one, what a fool is. And number two, what kinds of fools there are. Now finally, number three. How can we be a fool no more? The natural response of each kind of these these fools is simplistic. 
You know, if you're a believer, you're going to say, well, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to work hard to get wise. I'm going to receive constructive criticism. But guess what? It's not as simple as that. It can't be reduced uh, like that. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is often personified as a woman. Uh, a woman who calls out to the simple and the fools and stands beside God as, as he's creating the world. So, for example, Proverbs 1, verse, 22, verse 32, we read, Wisdom's calling out, and she says, The waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Whatever listens to my words will live in safety. If you're a fool, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be knocked about uh, because you're out of touch with reality. But whoever listens to my words, wisdom says, which many scholars, by the way, see as a, as a, a personification of Yeshua himself, whoever listens to my words will live in safety uh, and be at ease and have no fear of harm. Indeed, you know that centuries later, Yeshua had the audacity to literally take these words of Lady Wisdom from the book of Proverbs and put them in his own mouth and speak of as if he were the personification of God's wisdom. So, for example, he says in Matthew 7, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rains came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it did not fall, because it was built upon the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains came down, and the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Yeshua says, the wise are those who obey my words. How audacious for him to say that. If the wise men bowed down to him and worshipped him in his birth. At the age of 12, when, when Yosef and Miriam uh, took him to the temple, they found him seated in the midst of the temple, surrounded by all the wise, the religious leaders, uh, the Torah teachers, uh, uh, the scholars, listening to his answers, astounded by his wisdom. And when Yeshua began his teaching ministry, in Mark 6, verse 2, we read this. Yeshua began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed, asking, where did he get such wisdom? And he even had the audacity in Luke 11, 90, 91, I'm sorry, Luke eleven thirty one, 31, to look at the people who did not believe in him and say, the queen of Sheba will rise at the judgment and condemn you. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now a greater than Solomon is here. Yeshua says, I am the wisdom of God. And because he's the wisdom of God, according to Paul, ironically, he was also the foolishness of God. So look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. If anyone wants to be wise, you must become a fool, that you might be made wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. The only way to avoid becoming a destructive fool is to become a fool for Yeshua. For everybody is a fool. It's just a question of what kind of fool you are. <laughs> Whose fool are you? Paul says, through the foolishness of our preaching, people are saved. Through the preaching of the gospel of Yeshua the Messiah. According to the world, the way Yeshua was born and came into the world and the way he died and left the world, it's all foolish. The world says, well, if he's God, he wouldn't do it that way. He wouldn't do any of that. 
Not, not at all. As far as the world's concerned, this isn't how a king comes. This isn't how God comes to earth. Uh, the manger, no room at the inn, a baby born to paupers, members of an occupied, oppressed people. He comes weak. He looks foolish to the world. But what looks even more foolish is the way he left the world. Because he died on a cross. He said he was bringing the kingdom of God. He said he was coming to defeat evil. Okay, let's see it. But he dies. Uh, he loses power. Uh, he's tortured. Weakness, suffering. That's foolishness to the world. But then we reread this. We read this about the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. You know why? Here's why. The cross is the ultimate proof that God created this world, that there is a transcendent moral order and a transcendent divine law, and it must be honored. That's the implication of the cross. Because on the cross, we not only see a creation and divine law, that sin must be punished, we also see that we are fallen. And we're so utterly fallen, and so radically sinful, that Yeshua had to die for us. But there's also a third reality that we see on the cross. Not just creation, and not just fall. But also, most importantly, redemption. He's redeeming us. Even at the infinite cost of his own blood. And when you take that into your life... You're not only a relativist anymore, you're not, because you, you see there is a moral law of God that must be honored. And you're also not a moralist anymore, because the cross shows you, you, you must be saved by, purely by grace, you, not by your own deeds. And now finally, there's biblical optimism. And you can shout out, he saved me, he saved me. Even a wretch like me. And that revelation is shot through with realism. Finally, there's a humility. Yes, I'm a, I admit, I am a terrible sinner. But it's shot through with the confidence of, of being a new creation in Messiah Yeshua. So I can take criticism, and I can learn from it. I don't have to ignore it on the one hand or be devastated by it on the other. I'm not simple. I'm not a mocker. I'm too humble now to, to be a mocker anymore. I'm too confident now to be a simpleton. Finally, it's working. Finally, I'm beginning to become wise. And only when you take the fullness of the gospel in, creation, fall, redemption, only to that degree that you embrace it, that you grasp it, that you embrace it, that you give it, you put it into your life, uh, and you give your life to Yeshua. Only to that degree, as, as you grasp the foolishness of God, as seen in the incarnation and the crucifixion, do you finally become wise. Do you finally begin to be in touch with ultimate reality. In the book of Galatians, the Galatian believers, uh, they're being led astray from the gospel of grace into a, a religion of works righteousness and, and human achievement, uh, into moralism. And what does Paul say? Look at Galatians 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, you're fools. Who's bewitched you? Are you so foolish that the beginning by means of the spirit, you're now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Here's what one commentator says about this verse on the overhead. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Paul sees there's only one true antidote to foolishness. The proclamation of the gospel of the cross. The Galatians are foolish because relying on Torah observance for their salvation, 
They're losing sight of the one event that makes the world what it really is. Yeshua's death for us. Only if they're receiving it will wisdom begin. And with, only, and with any departure from the gospel, foolishness begins to set in. On the overhead, everybody is a fool. Either you're a simple fool, or an obstinate fool, or a ruthless fool, or you're God's fool. And here's what it means to become God's fool, to be a Yeshua follower. Paul says to become wise, you must become a fool, a fool for the Lord. And there's two ways you've got to do that. Uh, first of all, you must repent. No one becomes a real believer. No one is truly converted from the inside out. No one ever truly experiences the wisdom of God in transforming their life by simply saying, oh, I want God in my life uh, because I want to be a better person. No, rather, you must radically repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Turn back to God. You must admit, I've been a fool. I've been out of touch with reality. My motives were impure uh, and mixed with self-centeredness and pride and ego and flesh. Many people go through a religious phase, which they're trying to be a good person, and an irreligious phase in which they're trying to find themselves. But you've got to realize in both your religious and your irreligious phase, you were trying to avoid Yeshua as Savior. And many people are irreligious for the same reason, ironically, that they're religious. Because in each phase, but in different ways, they're trying to be their own Lord and Savior. And if this is you, you're out of touch with reality, and the Lord says, repent. Repentance is coming to your senses. Repentance is realizing you're out of touch with the way things really are. Repentance is saying, I was a fool. And if you're not willing to say that, you will never become wise. So on the overhead, you must become a fool for God, uh, a fool for Yeshua in two ways. Number one, you must repent. And then finally, number two, you must embrace the foolishness of the cross, the upside-downness uh, of God's kingdom. So that's the world, the, so that therefore the world's uh, priorities uh, of power and recognition and fame and status, they no longer matter. Uh, and you embrace the truth that God works through weakness uh, and through suffering and trials and tribulations. And once you embrace that and realize you're saved through that, by Messiah becoming weak and suffering for you, and admit you've been a fool up until now, and you cry out, Lord Yeshua, save me. Accept me because of what you've done for me on the cross. At that moment, you will actually become a fool in the world's eyes. If you want to become a Yeshua follower, if you want the wisdom of God, you've got to become willing to be, come, to be a fool in the world's eyes. Are you afraid to do that? You don't want anybody to know. You can't be wise if you're not willing to become a fool a fool for Yeshua. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to become Yeshua's fool? If not, you'll be some other kind of fool. There's no alternative. Take him. Receive him. Surrender to him. If anyone will listen to my message, Yeshua says, he'll be like the, be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. And Yeshua is that rock. Take refuge in him. Amen. Let's stand in praise. Let the music team, come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father.
Thank you, Father, for showing us, Lord, that today uh, the wise men bow down to Yeshua and worship him. Lord, show us what it means that Yeshua was born in weakness uh, and suffered and died a horrible death in order to save me, to save us through the weakness and the foolishness of the cross. For Lord, you make foolish the wisdom of this world. Your weakness is stronger than the strength of men. Uh, and your foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men. What we once thought of as, as worldly wise and, and powerful, we now see as foolish in light of your cross, Lord. For you were pleased to hide the wisdom of the universe and the mystery of our redemption in the foolishness of the cross. So the proud and the arrogant and those who refuse advice or counsel cannot find your wisdom. For your wisdom is not the world's wisdom. Your wisdom is revealed in the foolishness of the gospel, which is the power of God for all you tell us, for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So Lord Yeshua, today help us to build our house on the rock, on you, to learn and to apply your wisdom so we will no longer be the simple fool or the obstinate fool or the ruthless fool, but a fool for you. And in your name we pray, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.